Subtext and Discourse, the podcast taking you behind the scenes of the art world with the unique individuals involved in the field. I'm your host, Michael Dooney. Some of you may have been wondering why there's been a pause in new episodes. Without going into detail, there's just been a lot happening, both professionally and personally. However, I can say that over the next 10 weeks, there'll be new episodes at fortnightly intervals. I'll be speaking with lighting designer and socially minded practitioner Karim Asafer, Artie Gent Michael Barnett, curator Susan Bright, and art market journalist Georgina Adam. First up, I'll be speaking with photographer and educator Sal Robbins, who I met many years ago in Berlin when he was running a workshop at the Neue Schule for Photography. He is best known for his series Initial Intake, which examines the empty chairs of Manhattan-based psychotherapy professionals, and How Can I Help? An Artful Dialogue, where strangers had the opportunity to speak with him about anything in complete confidence. Be sure to subscribe to Subtext and Discourse, which is available on all major podcast platforms to stay up to date. Though without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sal Robbins. The first camera I ever had was a Kodak Instamatic in the mid early 70s. My family took a trip to India because my parents were pretty avant-garde, or are. My mother still, my father passed away. They went to India and said, wow, this is great. So they took us and somebody must have suggested that I do something I, because I was missing school. So I took a little camera and took pictures. And my father had taken pictures throughout my whole life. So there was certainly some influence from that, but it's not as if he had a dark room or photographed us all the time. I don't really have a, a strong recollection of that, but it was something that when I got to high school, I took a class and I loved it. And I thought, this is really fun. And then I finished high school, traveled, did a lot of different things before seriously going to school. And I, my mother suggested that I meet of the son of a friend of hers who was a studio photographer and he was looking for an apprentice and so i met him and ended up moving to vermont for a year and working for him and that was you know very serious working you know, 40 hours a week and then i went back to school and decided to complete my undergraduate degree yeah i didn't know you, you went to india how young were you when you went there i was about 11 and how long yeah. were you guys there for we were there for a month Wow. I can't imagine as an 11-year-old going to India. And I guess everything as a child is different and exciting. So I don't know how what level of intensity it would have been, but it, it was would have been intense. quite different, I think. <laughs> it was mind-blowing because I come from this middle-class professional family from San Francisco. So avant-garde, my parents were sort of like beatniks and hippies, but I had a sort of seemingly relatively normal life. And then oh, we're going to India, but can't we go to Disneyland or Grand Canyon? Yeah. You know, my sister and I always wanting something sort of more mainstream. And the first memory I have of landing there was getting a flat tire in the car and stopping on the side of some road and people waking up and like people defecating on the side of the road, like just really wild. So it was a combination of sort of mind-blowing, sort of not, I don't want to say necessarily disturbing, but just very different, like the complete polemic of being an you know, American kid and then mm-hmm. also having these incredibly beautiful, wonderful experiences and memories of like going to a wild animal place and seeing animals and riding on, probably on an elephant or something you know, at a place like that, but then also yeah. swimming in beautiful pools and trying different food and you know, the colors and the people and, and all that. Wow. So San Diego, I thought you were from New York for some no, reason. No, San Francisco. San Francisco, sorry. Yeah, I thought you guys were from New York or You've been based in New York. For I've been a long based time. in New York since 1996 when I moved here yeah. for graduate school. Yeah. But my parents are from here. So I think 
there's something, you know, sort of genetic almost, or certainly interpersonal about New York that fits my personality. And growing yeah. up, people always said, "Oh, you're so New York." Yeah. I think I'm just so <laughs> well, fast I thought I thought you were as well. I don't think yeah. when I'd met you, even the Yiddish terms or the um, <laughs> the kind of Jewish things that you kind of throw right. in there, I thought, okay, this guy is kind of classical New York. But the Bolinas, where you and your wife got married, and I saw that it was like an independent community in California. Is right. that where you grew up? No, I grew up in the city, but I grew up in the mm-hmm. Castro, which was when. The Castro was coming out as a gay neighborhood when I was coming into my sense of, you know, early teenagedom, just in the sense of like that has an influence on my development, my sense of comfort with, you know, different sexualities or whatever. And then my parents bought a house in Bolinas probably a year or two after we went to India, actually. And mm-hmm. just a tiny little house on an acre of land, you know, it cost nothing back then. But it is, it has an incredible reputation as an extremely avant garde, very independent extremely progressive, you know, beyond democratic community that has never really liked tourists, but of course is incredibly dependent upon them. So it's, it's very quirky, but it's yeah. also incredibly beautiful at the Southern end of what's called the Point Reyes National Peninsula, which is a national park along the ocean and you know, filled with you know, just incredible natural beauty. Wow. I mean, I guess it would, it can't not have had an effect on you, but it sounds like your parents more eccentric or, as you say, avant-garde view of the world, it must have had quite an, an impression on you or it must have at least shaped your view of the world. How did that compare to your peers, like at school and when you went to college and things like that? Well, I went to, well, first I went to UC San Diego, actually, and there I felt I was really in a very conservative place and I didn't connect with very many people. But then I ended mm-hmm. up transferring to UC Santa Cruz, partly because I had a girlfriend there. Oh, no, the girlfriend was from San Diego, but she was going there. But also, it was more similar to my surroundings. It was an hour mm-hmm. and a half from San Francisco. It was also sort of like Bolinas considered a very avant-garde, progressive destination, let's say, for people. And it's mm-hmm. one of several places in the U.S. that, that people gravitate toward. You know, maybe you know, a little quirkier. You know, maybe in a way like you know, Berlin has a quality like that or had yeah. for sure. It kind of draws that. Right. kind of people towards it. Draws that people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which we are both. How was the contrast then when you went to New York? Yeah. Yeah. So Santa Cruz, I felt after four years was enough. I didn't want to be in such a small town. Beautiful, but I felt that there was a limitation to the stimuli that I wanted. So I was back in San Francisco. And then when I was accepted, I was accepted at several programs, ICP, uh, Hunter College, and a University of Minnesota at Minneapolis. And the Minneapolis had an incredible package, but New York, the moment I got into the, the two programs here, I just thought there was just this strong intuitive sense and like a lock, like click, that's where I got to be. Mm-hmm. Um, just because I felt I wanted to try it. It was always an incredibly exciting, dynamic place full of cultural strengths and interesting people and maybe you know an overabundance of stimuli, but for what I was wanting, it seemed appropriate. Yeah. And when was that? Or what decade and how old so were you? So 1996 was when I came to New York and I was mm-hmm. 36, 35, yeah. 36. Yeah. So a little okay. bit older than a lot of my peers. But mm-hmm. it, um, yeah, so I've always, and I've always done a lot of different things. I've worked in construction. I worked in recycling, ran my own business for three years. But photography and art were always these things I would come back to. Mm-hmm. And the reason I went to graduate school is actually very, 
sort of psychological, I realized that I had been avoiding some things that I was wanting to do, but weren't working with my photographic work. And I had been sort of running, let's say, or hiding from facing the challenge of trying to figure out how to make it work. And so at one point, I just thought, I don't want to be doing the work I'm doing, which was recycling and construction. I need to be getting back into photography and coming up with a plan and getting my master's. And I wanted to be creating and I wanted to be teaching, which were the two elements that I really enjoy. So it was almost like quite a bit of a reset for you then moving from one side to the other side of the country, focusing on doing your photography and things like that. Yeah. And I think also I needed to get away, not really from my family, but I needed to get away from just the norm, let's say, that I was in. Yeah. I've been in San Francisco and on the West Coast for a majority of my life. I I thought I was just going to be there for three years. But then, you know, you meet someone, I got a couple job offers and suddenly everything goes on. Yeah. Did you start teaching not long after you'd finished your master's and you'd graduated there? Because I saw you were at you worked at ICP and you've worked as a adjunct professor of photography at a lot of different places and you're still actively teaching at a few of them now. So that's been your main, I guess, parallel to your own independent practice. You've always been working in education. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was a teaching assistant at, at Hunter. I was a student of Roy de Carava. So he was essentially my master professor, let's say. You know, I tr- similar to a, a German model where you study under one person. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not, it's not considered quite like that, but that's how I certainly considered it. And then right after graduate school, I got two different job offers. One was a summer program for teens teaching photo and video. And the other was teaching at what's called the GED, which is a graduate equivalent or general equivalent diploma, something like that for high, for kids trying to get their, their high school diploma. So I taught mm-hmm. with, you know, essentially like classic inner city population and taught photo and video. And I built a dark room at our school and brought in organization to teach them video. And those were sort of the, these root jobs, let's say, that I thought, well, I've got these jobs. I'll stay for a while, see what yeah. it's like. And then I did some work with ICP, where I still am on faculty. And then slowly, you know, as time went on, I would um, apply for other jobs or hear about things through friends, mm-hmm. things like that. And so how was it with your, how were you approaching your own photography? Was it more documentary or kind of journalistic style? or you Because you mentioned just before that, going back to photography was a way of you addressing things that you were for a long time avoiding. Right. So when I had this, let's say, these insights and was able to act on it and was accepted at schools, I was sort of experimenting a little bit, black and white, multiple exposure on film, creating collage things in camera and sort of creating these little narratives, sort of riffing off of maybe like Joyce Namanis or David Hockney or other people but I was mostly photographing black and white on the street mm-hmm. and walking around day and night, maybe a little bit similar to what DiCarava, but also so many other photographers, you know, Winogrand, Friedlander, et cetera. And after graduate school, I sort of wondered, well, what am I going to do now? A professor had said, I think he said, you're making very good photographs for street photography, but where can you take it? And I was wondering about what else to do. And I have... Uh, roll eye. And so I started to take pictures of the students I had at the GED high school. Mm-hmm. And I was also taking pictures on side roads outside of New York. I made a project called Roadside Distractions of things that I would notice that were interesting to me. And at some point, I started to notice and think about that there are all these gloves and other things on the streets in New York during the wintertime. 
And I thought, well, that's really weird. They're sitting there and nobody picks them up and nobody does anything with them. So there were a few things. So that was going on as a subject idea. I also bought a Hasselblad right after graduate school because there was an incredible student discount. And I thought, I got to have a Hasselblad. So it seems like such an awesome thing. And I wanted to learn color printing and color photography. And because of being faculty staff at ICP, I could go to the color darkroom as much as I wanted during open lab. So Mm -hmm. I literally sort of created my own course of shoot, get it developed, go to the darkroom. And I took a class and then I TA'd with a professor here, Jerry Vizuzo, who's a very well-known color printer, and stimulated the printing need, so to speak, with the fact that I was photographing all these lost objects on the streets. Yeah, And it was also rooted in Judaism because I had been spending time going to synagogue and trying to understand my Jewish roots, which Mm -hmm. were not very well informed growing up as the son of pretty secular parents, you know, in San Francisco. And there is a tractate, it's called, that talks about the care of lost objects. And it says that when you find something on the street, it's actually incumbent upon the finder to locate the owner. And the example they give is if you find a cow, you have to find that cow. And because humor and sort of irony are such an important quality to my identity, I think like, well, what if that cow has two babies and then you have more? Like, what if you suddenly have a flock or a herd of 32 cows <laughs> and yeah. you still have to find the man or the woman or the family that this belongs to? Like, what a huge you know, burden. But whatever, I decided I'm going to go out and I, <laughs> I go out with a, a wet bag and a dry bag and a little sign that, and some tape and a marker, and I would go literally put up a sign, I made it, and I would fill out like a blank was found at this and that location on this date. You know, take a picture of the object where I found it, tape up the notice, take the object home and wash it, dry it, and wait. <laughs> and I remember coming home once, and I'm sure my wife must have thought, you're nuts. Like, how was your day, dear? It's great. I found 12 gloves or something. You know, like, this guy's crazy. I'll get out of this relationship. I never got called, you know, because uh, New York City, nobody gives a damn. And that was such yeah. an interesting realization for me. Because one thing, as avant-garde as my parents are, they're very integral and they're very committed to humanistic values, justice, equity, you know, all these really important goals and desires about how the world should operate. And mm-hmm. they also really value being honest and caring. So there was a seriousness with which I took the project, but yeah. there was also a recognition that it's just not going to turn into anything. Yeah. The project, the one you, I think you've had the most attention from is the initial intake series. Mm-hmm. And there's a quote on your website, which I'll read out now. The series grew out of my response to one particular therapeutic relationship and the necessity of questioning the efficacy and treatment of working with that practitioner. Now, from what you've already said before in the time we've been speaking is that when you relocated from the West Coast to the East Coast, part of that was facing up to certain things that you were perhaps avoiding. And even just now you were saying like exploring your Jewish roots, Mm -hmm. maybe coming to terms with other things psychologically. There's a bit of a blank here that I'm trying to trying to fill with a timeline. Like were you going to see people for mental support or what was the... (laughs) Yeah, I guess what was the catalyst really whilst you were there? Yeah, that's a great question. So at, right after graduate school, 
maybe even still during now, I can't remember exactly. Oh, I was dating this woman. <laughs> I met her right before I was moving to Berlin to be an Austausch student. So it was the late winter of 97. And yeah, I meet this woman. Wow, it's great. You know, like flash, boom, bang, you know, all the kind of excitement. But I'm going to Berlin for six months. And I came back from Berlin. And during the time in Berlin, I felt held back because I, in a way, because I was always waiting for that relationship to resume. Mm -hmm. And when I came back, it didn't, it just crashed. Okay. <laughs> it yeah. was fine. And then I decided I needed to go into therapy, which was, of course, it's a family practice. Everybody in my family is a psychologist except for myself. Okay. And oh, I've so it's quite normal then for it's you. It's quite normal and it's normalized, right? So, I had spoken to my parents because we're very close and my father had suggested somebody through an organization that he had studied with to get his master's. Mm -hmm. And so I had found like a low cost clinic because I'm a graduate student. I barely have money for the subway. I'm riding my bike everywhere and I'm looking for like, there's a sliding scale place. And my father said, I don't think you should see a sliding scale person. You should see someone better. And he said, I'm willing to give you the difference or something like that. So I said, okay. So I started to see this person that he had found through his network. Mm -hmm. And the person was helpful. And then at some point, I guess I was noticing things in his office environment and some of the little stories that he would tell me or anecdotes. And I noticed that some of his suggestions or advice, you know, they don't want to call it, it's not appropriate to call it advice that's sort of frowned upon, but I'm always looking for advice. So, you know, what he was telling me, I, I wasn't ringing true with me. I was starting to think, well, maybe that's not really what I need. And I remember at one point he had to leave the room or he said, I'll be right back or I'll be in in a minute or something. And I was looking at his empty chair and I found the surroundings of the chair. He had these like, he had a Paul Clay and some other poster on the wall, maybe like a Monet. And I love Paul Clay. And I have loved Monet in the past, but like posters of art and there was nothing special. The rug was really, you know, the chair was really whatever. And I started to wonder about this environment as reflective of him and about the empty chair. And do I even need to be talking to this person? Like maybe just talking to the chair is enough for me. Mm -hmm. And somehow something just clicked and I thought, hmm, I should take a picture of his chair. And I asked him, would you mind? I have an idea. And you know, he was supportive. Sure, let's help this guy out or whatever. <laughs> and I took a picture of the chair and I liked it. And then I was at a Rosh Hashanah, which is a Jewish New Year dinner with my aunt and uncle. And I was talking to two yearly guests that I would see every year. And they are both psychiatrists and they both offered to let me photograph their chairs. So I suddenly had three mm -hmm. and I thought, hmm. And I talked to a few different people and I started to see that something was coming together that was about this level of inquiry of what is this space? What is it used for? It's a very particular type of work. It's one that, you know, it's, let's say highly charged, whether you're a fan or a critic or a skeptic. And we always wonder who these people are. You know, they are sort of anonymous when you work with someone that you're not supposed to reveal a whole lot about yourself. Although there's, of course, a, a wide range of personality or approaches to personality and, and presentation or, or divulgence, let's say, of the personality, the practitioner. And the project just started to go and go and go. And I, I worked on it for about three years. And then 
the mother of a high school student of mine whose office I had photographed somehow was in touch and said, Saul, I was interviewed by someone and she'd love to talk to you. And I got a phone call from this woman, Penelope Green, who wrote mm-hmm. an article for House and Home or wrote, I think almost, not necessarily weekly, but wrote very often for House and Home for the New York Times. And she interviewed me and I didn't know what was going to happen because I'm a photographer, but they were interviewing all these therapists who worked at home. And the question of was about seeing someone or working from home and the perception of this exact question that I have about intimacy, about personality, about how much one might reveal. And some of the stories like, you know, a maid met me or, or someone met me and let me in, or there were dogs running around or whatever, or the home has a completely separate entrance and there's no recognition. Mm-hmm. And they ended up choosing nine of my images to publish. And so that catapulted it to greater recognition and you know certainly the the awareness was already with me that this was something of interest i just didn't know that it would become part of the new york times yeah wow yeah cuz looking through the pictures i thought i didn't think to question where they were taken but they do have a very domestic feel about them so going by what you're saying these are all home offices or you would go and see this person at their place and if they've got an alternate entrance or someone else lets you in the house and then you go to the room where you would be therapized for want of a better word (laughs) (laughs) yeah and what's interesting is even the images that new york times chose not all of them were exclusively home offices but the potential for them to be perceived as safe comfortable and intimate like one would have a home visitation experience let's say or social experience and i think that's the importance of a good therapist because i i have my own questions about the practice, but I believe very strongly in the importance of psychotherapeutic investigation and interaction in order for us to figure out, troubleshoot, and you know move through our lives more, mm-hmm. I don't know, healthy and efficiently and capably and all that. Did it help going to see a lot of the different spaces? Because if you were already wondering about the one individual that you were seeing, going to other spaces, did it reveal anything to you as an artist or as a patient going and seeing the different environments? Yeah, that's a good question. Because at the time, I had stopped seeing this guy. And I think maybe I started to feel like I've come into my own and enough of a sense of maturity, so to speak, and stability in my life. And here I am working on this project. And you know whether it has any success or not, I've just felt very sure about mm-hmm. the project and the responses that people would have or the conversations I might have with some of the people. And recognizing not at all my capacity to interact with them as an equal. I have never taken a course or even really read much of books about psychology. But I felt like as a human being, you know, as just as, as someone who's thoughtful and sensitive, that I was doing okay. And the other thing that's going on is that a lot of this time I was teaching, and I was also coming into my own in that arena as well. You know, mm-hmm. I was no longer a teaching assistant. I was getting really positive feedback and appreciation and, you know, courses were being renewed at ICP or other places. And I felt that, you know, that I was hitting my stride and I was really falling it, falling into a place that was comfortable for me and fitting into, you know, let's say a body and mind, so to speak, that was reflective of what I would imagine if I just like, sat at home and thought about hmm, who am I and what do I want to be doing or something like that. Yeah. So you had enough, let's say, things happening externally to the experience of therapy with the person you were seeing that 
your external life was changing, you had the space maybe then to express what was going on. It sounds as though that all these things were kind of happening at the right time so that through this experience that led into the project and going from a teacher's assistant to a a teacher, having that recognition and I suppose additional responsibility and everything else, they kind of all fed into one another by the sounds of things. Yeah, I think that's true. And then you know, at some point, and I imagine this is where we may be leading anyway, so it's roughly 2010, let's say. So I'm getting a, not a ton of attention. It's not like I'm an international name or something, but getting attention for initial intake. I've stopped photographing for it and started to think about some other things, which sort of led into some of the abstract and more conceptual work I'm making now. But I realized, similar to that sense that was in my gut when I was in San Francisco, working in construction or recycling and thinking, hmm, I don't know that this is what I want. There was a sense of, I don't think this idea of initial intake is fully fleshed out, fully resolved and articulated for me or experienced really. And I heard about an organization called Shasama and they give artists what they call the space to create. And they have empty storefronts and other spaces throughout the five boroughs. And I applied for in 2012 and received a small sort of like a what we call a vest pocket or like a, a little tiny shoe store that was kind of like empty because nobody was too small to really be retail value mm-hmm. and i hung two rows of pictures of the chairs and i set up a little shop for two weeks called how can i help an artful dialogue and the idea was to offer people the chance to speak with myself or other artists who i had met and either convinced her or um, cajoled into joining me to sit for roughly a 15 or 20 minute free session to talk about anything they wish in total confidence. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what was going to happen. I set up and I made a whole, you know, email campaign and call me or email me if you want to set up an appointment. And I had a clipboard with free times and I'd spent a lot of time on the street handing out cards and saying something like talk to an artist for free, you know, something like that. And sort of turning into a little bit of a sideshow barker. But I think I must've gotten at least two or three visitors every day. Oh, wow. And, you know, as the two weeks played out in the second week, there's certainly more visitors. Mm -hmm. There was a art walk or something one evening in the first week. So that I got a lot of attention there and people seeing what was going on, it started to build the momentum that of course you want from any sort of an exhibition or performance opportunity. Yeah. And I think at the end, I think it was filling like seven or eight out of 12 slots easily. It was an incredibly interesting experience just for one, because I'd never thought of myself really as a performer. I think more of myself as sort of silly and full of antics and all mm-hmm. that, but not necessarily for public view. Like, was it just looking at the chairs and thinking, what if I was to sit in the chair looking back at the person and then they can talk to me and ask me, this is how I'm feeling or what does this mean? I think it was a combination of that. It was a combination that alternatives to traditional therapy are often the ones that I know about are something like there's something called co-counseling where sort of like what you and I are doing now, but we would, instead of talking about my work and we would be talking about either you, Michael, for an hour mm-hmm. or half an hour or whatever, or, or myself. And often in the same session, you know, the same hour block, each person would have, let's say half an hour or these different other types of very democratic ways of which one talks. And one 
I don't know if I'd call it profound insight, but one insight I had was so like, what about just talking to your friends and like, oh wait, I could be a friend. So what about talking to me? And what about what would it be like to for me to talk to people? And there must have been because my classroom interactions are often incredibly intimate. That's and what profound. I, was, I was thinking. Yeah, yeah, and so. I would have people talking about stuff that happened in their family or to them or whatever. And it wasn't like they were revealing, you know, horrible traumas or something, but the level of discussion in my class was sort of similar to what it might be in a group therapeutic session as far as safety, intimacy, trust, and a building of care that continued throughout the length of the course and sometimes even afterwards. Like I have a group of students now from an online course of all things, three of them are meeting regularly. Oh, so there was a, there was a wow. there was a sense of comfort and social value that they all experienced that I too experienced in that class that's continued now without me. So I I think I somehow put it all together and sort of like I said to you earlier like there's always some sort of problem that I can't figure out and I'm I feel maybe like not necessarily but like I'm a little over caffeinated sort of like classic wild Jewish you know New York guy <laughs> let's, let's make a deal what do we do what do we do? whatever <laughs> and um, then oops wait a second <laughs> you know I just get hit by a truck or something but the, all that sort of fren- occasional frenetic energy also is maybe distilling out the real gems of the ideas and you know hmm interesting I do function a little like this in my classroom. And I do function like this with different friends and my partner, my wife and my life. And why not try this? Yeah. And I would say that there were times when I was terrified because I spent a lot of time studying some of the like questions about what happens if somebody comes in as suicidal or panic. Well, yeah, that's what I was wondering. And I, yeah. before we started the interview, I was just talking to my wife about it. And she said, do people have to sign a disclosure agreement? Because... If you're not a trained therapist, how do you handle it? If somebody comes in and says, look, I've been having a lot of really dark thoughts or whatever, right? what do I do? And then it's like, oh, I was just going to talk about art and other things. Like, did that happen? Or Yes, it did. So someone whose office I had photographed, who I became friendly with, and I see her at the local farmer's market, she and I talked about some stuff and she said, oh, I'm happy to give you some, you know, some you know, real advice. And I spoke to my sister about some questions about maintaining those boundaries because like you and I are talking and it's mm-hmm. very friendly and easygoing and it's friend-based and I wanted to make sure not to go over that line in these interactions. Like at 20 minutes, I need to get you out of there. And one mm-hmm. reason is something longer than 20 or 30 minutes is perceived as a real session. Okay. Seeing, seeing somebody for more than one session is perceived as a real relationship. And the fact that where you could be talking about very intimate things is perceived as a therapeutic interaction. And it's not that I'm practicing without a license, though that came up in a, you know, <laughs> tangentially from one of the sponsors of the boot, the space, but wanting everybody to know I am not licensed. I'm not trained. Like I've literally never even taken psych 101. I'm sure as sensitive and thoughtful as I am, if there was like a test, like a driving test, I'd be lucky to get 80% because half of the stuff I'm just making up from life. But I created a little form that I passed by you know, several people to make sure it was correct enough. And essentially said, you know, I the understand, understand that I am seeing somebody who's not trained. This is an artistic experience. And if feelings come up, there are resources available to me. I had a whole one page or two page available of resources. And you know, this is 
in a way it's it's not playful it's serious mm -hmm. but yeah. it is not meant to replace the need for something really skilled and trained and and you know, you know capable and i did have one person come in one day because at first i was like like what's going to happen and you meet a few people and you talk like oh i think i'm doing okay and then this young guy came in one day and he was upset and i think i remember he had walked by a few times over the course of time and maybe he poked his head in or something and he said, I'd love to chat. And the, the room was empty. I said, great, come on in. And he started to talk about feeling yeah. depressed and feeling anxious and feeling worried. And I'm talking to him in the way you and I are talking. Mm -hmm. but And I, I feel like I even feel it in my body now. In my body and in my head, I was just kind of panicking. Like, this is real. Okay, Saul, you, you know, the happy-going artist, whatever, you have these fun ideas. This guy needs your serious attention. Are you really capable? And so part of me is like, you know, <laughs> immediately I think, oh, I'm a failure. So I don't even know that I can do this. Rather, no, I'll be fine. And we talked and we talked and I gave him some suggestions. And at one point he said, that's exactly what my best friend would say. And immediately for me, it was like a major shift. It was like an earthquake. Like I had this huge, at least internal sigh of relief. Like, okay, I'm doing all right. I'm not an expert with this. I'm just trying to help this guy, but I am as capable as his best friend. And there is some level of trust and safety and intimacy there. And what was also profound was there was a sense of humanism. And that was so amazing. Like he and I are connecting and I was probably late forties at least, or maybe early fifties. And he was maybe 18 or 20. So, you know, there's all the sense of divide, but we're connecting. Mm -hmm. And it was really profound and, and beautiful. And I think it solidified also what I'd been experiencing with other people. But now, because the situation with him felt so important, I did not want to let this guy down. And so that sense of being able to meet him where he was at and to give him something or to help him to realize something really, because again, I think good therapeutic counseling is not about you guiding somebody. It's about helping them to guide themselves. Yeah. So that was incredible. Then it happened again in 2014 as part of Photoville, which was more sort of performance and crazy because you're in this um, empty shipping container and there's 10,000 people a day are coming through the entire festival and people are listening and watching. And you know, anyway, you know, it was incredible because there were still equally serious, you know, earnest discussions taking place. But the backdrop was just so wild. Oh, but wow. one thing I want to say, which may make me think about this, what was great about the Shasama space and visitors to my website would see it is it was a space with a glass facade. So you could see in, but you couldn't hear and you couldn't come in. The door could be locked. Mm -hmm. And with Photoville, what I did is I set everything up at the back of the container and the visitor sits and faces me and I sit and face outside. And I was interested in revealing the therapist, so to speak, or the counselor and maintaining the anonymity and the privacy of the visitor, because that's yeah. really important. And I would take notes, but I would never record. And I'd let people know I was just taking notes, but I would respect the importance of that privacy. And I mentioned that just because the design of this physical space for this very serious interaction is always made around recognizing the importance of safety and, and trust. Yeah. And I have 20 minutes. You and I have been talking for 40 minutes. And we've known each other for a while. So just sort of recognizing how to be efficient with time and to be serving somebody with that. Yeah, it's interesting even just to think how many people 
wanted someone to listen to them, like that they would see here's a stranger or here's here's a dude in a shop that's got a sign up that says I will listen to you talk. It's like I need that. I'm going to go and have a chat to him now. Like literally, strangers off the street would come in and say, "Can you listen to me, please?" That there was a absolutely a genuine right. need there for that kind of service, which is even just thinking about it abstractly, that is quite an interesting situation. Right, right. Yeah, and I think at the same time, it's like it's profound and not profound because everybody now, well, now we're in this really extremely profound time of the year plus of the global pandemic. I think there's probably been an uptick in awareness about sort of the need for psychological and mental health. But normally people don't really think about it, but we have interactions all the time. And this probably can happen in Berlin too, although traditional German sort of city culture may be more private for sure than New York. But in New York, you could sit down on the subway and end up having a conversation with someone and become best friends or get married <laughs> or something, you know, whatever. So I recognize sort of the potential of just connecting with anybody, you know, almost mm. like on a park bench. And that if you're willing to listen and the person is not you know, giving you an hour long monologue, and if you, if you have boundaries, mm-hmm. there's ways in which you could probably have a very profound impact on someone. And a few people who I knew came in. So I've, I've probably seen over 200 people or seen wow, it with or whatever okay. we want to call it. But most of them are not people I actually know. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely strangers. Yeah. Yeah. And you did it in a few different locations because you said you did it at Photoville and the storefront in. Yeah, it was in Manhattan. And I was invited to be. Yeah, in Republic of Georgia in Tbilisi. I I set up a little pop up just at a table after hours. That was not as successful. I think the the cultural awareness about what it meant to sit and talk with someone Mm -hmm. was lost when it was turned into a like a time and a place. But, you know, I could have conversations with the people who worked at the hotel I stayed in or Mm -hmm. other people I ran into during the festival I was invited to. But then I also decided roughly a year ago to launch the How Can I Help an Artful Dialogue as a sort of digital um, Mm -hmm. interaction where I people could email me or text me and set up an appointment and we would speak as you and I are doing now. And I that went on for probably three months and I had some pretty profound discussions with people, a range of ages and let's say, you know, life situations, mm-hmm. things about work, uh, one person with old stuff about their father. This was an older person, you know, t- you know, different things like that. Wow. Crazy. Just, I mean, even just the idea of, yeah, writing to it online, but I think definitely, as you say, particularly in the last year, because we're so starved of social interaction even right. when the dhl guy comes and drops a parcel off if there's any opportunity to have a conversation with somebody it's like oh no hang around just stay a little bit longer because i haven't talked to anybody and you can kind of right. feel that even though you sort of just take it for granted because you will have your day-to-day interactions when you're not having them at all you definitely miss them yes absolutely my kids in a dual language spanish class and there's some families where it's a dual language English class and they have, the parents don't actually speak English. And there's a couple of parents though that I have this incredible connection with. I just see him. There's this one guy, Victor, who's the father of one of my son's classmates. And every time I see him, it's just Victor. And I say it with a little bit of a Spanish accent, like Victor. <laughs> and he says, Saul. And like in the middle of the last summer, I, and I'm, I've been a volunteer with handing out fresh fruits and vegetables to families from the schools and sometimes community. And I see him and would just give each other, the, like, without even stopping myself, like, holy smoke, I'm giving this guy, a, like, a hug. 
because there's just this <laughs> sense of caring for someone and here he is and we're both okay. And we've always had this sense of connection and I can't even articulate it or I cannot articulate it for me, but I don't think he'll understand and yeah. I won't understand what it means to him. But that connection, or like you say, even a handshake or a fist bump, you know, there's these different ways we've now figured yeah. out how to have some physical connection because it's so, so lacking. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. 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 Well, that's even more interesting then to have a bond with somebody that you have no shared language except I know your name and you know my name and we can gestate at one another, but otherwise that's it. We don't have any words. <laughs> yeah. There's another girl whose mother and I, we talk a lot and it's fascinating. She's from the Dominican Republic and people from the Dominican Republic speak v faster than Puerto Ricans and Mexicans and other people. And I barely understand half of it on a good day, but like we're just interacting and somehow we're sort of communicating and one of us will sometimes bring up a translation <laughs> app on our mobile, but there's a way in which she talks, which is like super insistent, like, this is what's going on. I was like, I have no idea what you're even talking about, it's, but it's fascinating. And I think it's partly like that interaction and the same with this guy, Victor, these are rooted in my desire to connect with people in the classroom or in the pop-up mm -hmm. or in any other way. And in a way, like my desire to be available to other people. And it's just, you know, it could happen with someone, you know, I talk to people, homeless people always come up to me or people on the subway. It's just sort of a, I guess it's a very New York quality in a way that could also be San Francisco. Yeah. But I think it's really searching for a greater level of human interaction at a time where in the world, for me, feels so fractured and distant and so full of distrust or animosity and wanting to break that down. Yeah. So do you think you'll continue the project or you're just having it, it's kind of on hold at the moment until I guess the situation changes or you're busy with other things, I guess, because you're still teaching and you have your son You've got a lot happening anyway. Yeah, I have. And do you mean the pop-up project where there's a physical yeah. location? I would love to because the other thing that happened is uh, in t roughly 2018, I was invited to New Orleans to um, essentially be an artist in residence and to create a pop-up project. And I photographed various locations where mental health and healing take place that were really not alternative. And a lot of the research was just on the ground. The person who was running as a group called Pelican Bomb, which was a mm -hmm. gallery and sort of a think tank at the time and no longer exists. They helped me with some introductions, but I think at least 50% of the locations just came about through my own sort of process. So I would love to consider going to another place or figuring out how else this might happen. Mm -hmm. But So what was the one in, in New Orleans that you were doing? You were documenting different, I guess, places of alternative healing. Yeah, it's it's also on the how can I help an artful dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, I saw them at the bottom, page. and that's what I wasn't sure like how they fit into it. Yeah, I haven't figured out how to define it on my website. This is a struggle because I also have been making this abstract conceptual work that's rooted in some other side of me. Mm -hmm. But the sort of conceptual artist and the sort of humanitarian and educator and parent in me mm -hmm. is very invested in the the values that make the the how can I help an artful dialogue project yeah yeah well I was, well that was the other i guess strand of your work that i was wondering about was the photographic drawings or this more abstract work that you're making and it seems that it started with the where's my happy ending but are chemical peels and fertile gestures more recent works or yes, series they are yeah 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 so i've always been interested in more than photography you know painting drawing a little bit of sculpture 
but photography was where I gravitated because I guess I didn't feel confident as a line maker. And I guess it's because the camera allows us to make a simulacrum of reality that we perceive as reality and, and respond to as if it is. And that has such profound experiential potential for viewers. So that's why I've always gravitated to, let's say, lens-based image making, sharp, clear, sort of a documentary background and intent. And then at the same time, I was always interested or have been always interested in what could I do with my hands that's more interactive or more interventionist. And the same therapist who suggested some ideas and sort of counseled me on how to manage my release form for the pop-up suggested at one point, I told her that uh, Susan, my wife and I had been having a difficult time starting a family. Mm -hmm. And she suggested or made some commentary about what she calls white light meditation that had been found to be very helpful with, I think, cancer patients at some very mainstream medical hospital here. And I thought, oh, white light meditation. Hmm. So again, you're like, suddenly, you're like, little ideas, hmm, lost gloves, white light meditation, empty therapist chairs, you know, these things sort of sit and they germinate for me. And, you know, I just mull on them at three in the morning or, you know, walking or whatever, swimming or something. And at some point I thought, oh, and I sat down with one of my prints and I decided to scratch off the emulsion mm. and to literally put white concentric circular light, so to speak, and intentionality into these images. And these are also on my website. And a lot of the pictures were of Susan, uh, one or two of me, and then it just sort of grew. And so I made some pictures because at one point her fallopian tubes were blocked and we went to a radiologist's office and I sat in the waiting room, an anxious potential father, you know, and I had a piece of paper and I was drawing little open fallopian tubes. And the guy came out and he said, we've opened her tubes. And I thought, you know, it certainly yeah. wasn't because of my drawings, <laughs> but I, but because I love irony and humor, I thought, well, it could have been, or, you know, maybe like, there's a part of me that's not very sort of hippy dippy, fantastical and sort of human potential. Like if you think it, you can do it, all that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. But there's another side of me that wants to believe that. I certainly want to raise our son to believe that he's capable of anything, maybe not levitating, but, <laughs> and there is real recognition, factually based, of people with physical problems, you know, cancer patients, whatever, being able to help to heal themselves through meditation and other non-invasive or intrusive and non-medicine-based means. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's all sorts of indicators out there of this likelihood. So I'm fascinated by that. And so anyway, this whole thing just sort of started to come about of making drawings. And I recognize that, oh, these pictures are nice. I was shooting 35 millimeter film you know, interested in a saturation of color and strong image. I wasn't trying to take bad images and fix them. I was mm -hmm. trying to do something else. And so I just started creating my own little language, let's say, of different squiggles and glyphs and such, and apply that to the photographs. And I've made some long scrolls. I think there's one, that's, I got some 10 inch wide paper, and I made something that's like almost 10 feet long. And it's oh, of yeah. a, you know, circular the let's say you know mandala or circular like image and then all these little sperm mm -hmm. and the idea of you know like wanting to penetrate the egg you know so in a way they're like very 
grounded because part of me like as wilder um avant-garde as i might be part of me is also very straightforward very logical <laughs> yeah and very literate yeah i suppose these are the more personal works really that you've done compared to the initial intake going back to the other projects how do the other two fit to it then because with the where's my happy ending i could see from a very literal point mm-hmm. where that was but then the ones after it so the chemical peels and the right. third hole gestures i feel like those ones have happened either during the pregnancy or postpartum, how do they fit into the narrative? Right. So the chemical peels actually began before. So I was running a color processor at this place, the Camera Club in New York. Mm-hmm. We had a 30-inch uh, roller processor. And because I had, I was responsible for fixing it, I could f- essentially fuck it up. Okay. So I don't know how, but one day I literally just took a couple of sheets of paper and put them face to face and threw them through the processor. And I got something that looked interesting. And what I was getting were these mirror images, Mm -hmm. but I started to play with either putting more paper in between. So creating something with, you know, three or four layers or strips, or I would sometimes spit or not expose the paper at all and just playing with different ideas. And I at first got these really anthropomorphic looking images that were similar to some of the scans, let's say, that we were getting in the or had gotten in the diagnostic treatment for our infertility struggle. Oh, okay. You know, that was really the initial sort of way it all linked. But as it went further, I had some giant roll paper someone gave me. I think I traded like a piece of furniture to a friend for an unused roll, roll of paper. And I started to recognize that I could roll two or three pieces of paper through, and but maybe what I'm doing is using those three pieces really to get one rather than oh, everything is precious and everything has to go together. And I really had this sort of profound enjoyment from making work that way. And it's very sort of spontaneous and relatively quick because you're just assembling things essentially. And you don't, you don't really want to contaminate the paper very much because it's going through chemistry mm-hmm. and it wasn't my processor. So it's not as if I can really destroy the chemistry and then just clean it up. So yeah, just a lot of playing around and in really liking what I was getting. And some of the images are really celestial. Some of them are very human referential because there'll be a shadow of a hand or body part. Yeah, um, some I saw had, re- they looked like really little hands. I was wondering yeah, if you had right, Theodore's right. hands on them. Or if that was no, just this a was trick. before this was before Theodore. There must have been something about the way. So I'll I'll sometimes take the paper, roll it up, and instead of putting it in a dark box and walking it to the processor, mm-hmm. I would just literally carry it and hold it. And I think there's an impression, you know, or lack of yeah. from the light hitting my hand, and then the paper being rolled up added to you know sort of various levels of of exposure to the paper. Yeah. Okay. And the fertile gestures. So that came yeah after Theodore was born. And it had been something I'd been thinking about for a long time, but probably because of living in New York. I don't have an exterior wall. I don't have a place to make a mess, really. I decided to try something at my parents' house on the side of their shed, which was I wanted to throw eggs at photo paper because I wanted to essentially play with conceptually the idea of a man and an egg and what could I make. Because... It's not always this way, but it could be the male could have the fertility challenge. It could be the female. Mm-hmm. Certainly the industry profiles the woman as being the problem. Absolutely. And I would say that it's unbelievable how that happens. Maybe there is a higher percentage of, of female 
I don't know, body chemistry or whatever that goes on. But the male, there could be sperm count, there could be fertility, motility, there's all sorts of stuff. And I remember, you know, finally when they wanted to ask me questions, like, oh, what a relief. They're finally bothering me yeah. rather than her. Like that as just like one little addition that sort of feeds these questions like, hmm, 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 you know, that same input of data and stimuli. And then I thought, hey, what about throwing an egg? And then I thought, well, where can I do that? And then at one point I just thought, oh, I'd do that at my parents' house. So I'd pin up this uh, 20 by 16 or what's it like 50 by 40 centimeter paper. Mm -hmm. And I'd grab these free range organic eggs, of course, because <laughs> it's in Bolinas. You know, it's illegal to buy anything that's commercial there. <laughs> and I'd, you know, I'd throw one egg at the paper. And then I decided, I think the first time I'd, I let them sit the, through the duration of my visit, which was two or three weeks. And then I decided, oh, I'm going to pin it up and leave it. And maybe I took three home and then the others I left. Mm -hmm. And there were some, the most recent, I think, were sitting there like four or five months. And I had some during the, the pandemic because I haven't been back since a year ago, January. But my nephew took them down because my mother finally said, Saul, they're falling off. Mm -hmm. I just don't want the responsibility. I'm getting too old. So I'm interested in sort of creating an event by throwing the egg, which is rooted in questions about male fertility and rooted also in the sort of absurdity of and the irony of well it's not me it's not an egg mm -hmm. it's you know whatever some sort of aspect of that but then let's just see what happens and then enjoying the completely non-photographic you know imagery that comes out of it which is very expressionistic or impressionistic and you know less conceptual and more just abstract yeah no, it's interesting. And, I think and then to there's see, also like, oh, sorry. I was going to say, it's interesting how your work, especially through that series and even thinking about the How Can I Help, how it has shifted more towards performative. And I know you said like line-based, but where your, your hand or your physical intervention is present, whereas with a camera, it's very mechanical and there's reality in air quotes there. But through these different actions, I suppose, a lot of it is through accident because you don't know mm -hmm. how an egg is going to look when you throw it onto something. And right. you don't know what's going to happen when somebody comes through your door and says, I'd like you to listen to what I have to say. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. And I think there was one other thing about the fertile gestures that I like. There was a physical catharsis about it. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not hurling the eggs as hard as possible because when I did, it hit the paper, the paper dropped, you know, it became a problem. But that sense of like, ah, oh, I just want to get this. Because I was still trying to resolve some of the old emotional and a little bit of physical anxiety and angst and frustration and everything that had built up for we struggled for over a decade to start the family we yeah. took some time off but you know it's always in your mind and then the other thing i want to talk about quickly which which is this new work i've been making that i'm not quite sure where it's taking me but it's what i'm making most and i want to mention it because for listeners they might find it interesting either the work itself or the process but it's related and something you just said like you know, going from the purely photographic to something that's more personal, either interventive or physical. So I have this kid, well, we have this kid, and I'm a photographer, and I also notice behavior. And I'm very aware of when, like, he's making me crazy, or I'm doing something, we're making each other crazy, or we're this incredible, beautiful moments like we were out recently in the rain and he was painting on tree leaves with a friend and it was like this Andy Goldsworthy type of experience. It was for me, you know, profound. But what I've been doing is taking pictures of Theodore and I've been writing and I didn't mention it earlier, but the struggle that I had 
many years ago now that stopped me from making pictures and then eventually that you know, to come back to it was I was trying to figure out how to articulate myself verbally mm-hmm. with my photographs because I would see something I was traveling around the world like I don't know like a boat on a river in China and I'd have some thought and I think well how do I write that down and rather than struggling with the writing I try it sucked it's a failure it's over but I've been able to come back to that so in a way I've reclaimed that original sort of anxiety and fear about I can't express myself Mm -hmm. and so I'm not sure where it's going and I don't know if it's you know worthy so to speak because it's like pictures of a kid and about a family or something but it's also really about me and about the relationship we have and the profoundness of being a parent and maybe the profoundness also of being a father and you know as you know male has normally been relegated to a secondary participant in family rearing mm-hmm. like i heard something recently about japan where fathers spend like an average of like 45 minutes a day with their kid doing anything maybe on their own or really you know, engaged and involved in sort of leading and taking care of and taking responsibility. I spend like more than 70% of, of my time yeah. when he's around probably is with him. A little bit less now he has his own interests, but I've always been the primary parent. My wife you know, works more. And mm-hmm. So I'm just interested in like what this might turn into. Is it momentary until there's another type of project or opportunity for something that's more either physically demanding or demanding of my physical presence or demanding that I have a physical intervention, so to speak, and, you know, interaction with my materials. So I just sort of mentioned it as, you know, sort of like bringing us full circle to where I really am yeah. now. Yeah. Well, that reminds me, or I guess that could be one way to kind of tie it all up as well is as a teacher, and I guess as a coach and somebody that works together one-on-one with a lot of artists and with students, how has, or how have rather, all the different experiences through the different projects becoming a parent, like how has that impacted the way that you approach teaching other people about photography and how to express themselves? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's had a profound influence on me. So the being a parent and feeling like I'm actually parenting well, <laughs> you know, we always wonder about that. So sense of confidence and just the you know, managing the day-to-day and finding a profound sense of reward with my students in general. I'm able to meet them and address, you know, meet them where they are and give them something. I think in a way, I think of parenting as stewarding, mentoring, knowing when to step back, knowing when to step in. And it's very similar to teaching in a way. With a teaching experience or teaching, you know, relationship, you're expected to give examples and advice and suggestions and say that's not working, Mm -hmm. you know, in a different way. And that's wanted. But I think it's all sort of combined because I do feel usually more and more confident about what I have to offer. And maybe partly that's because I might show my photography students paintings or drawings or something else that I think is of value to them that they may never have heard of or thought of, and that becomes really helpful. So it is really about helping. Mm-hmm. I come to this to the classroom or the screen or the pop-up office or wherever with um, hopefully as much directness and openness and transparency as possible. And I know others won't bring me that, but I hope that I, over time I will engender that desire on their part to meet me where I'm coming from. Yeah, absolutely. It's difficult. And it's an interesting metaphor, too, to think about this time and the way that may 
fit into the work that students are making. But I want to. Re- I like to remind them of the importance of looking at things metaphorically, conceptually, literally, psychologically, you know, visually. So, so trying to figure out how to introduce people to as much as possible without blowing them up, so to speak. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed learning more about Sal's work and his story in general. As always, there are links in the show notes to most things that we spoke about in addition to Sal's website and social media. If you do have any questions or would like to know more about this episode or episodes in the past, you're very welcome to get in touch. That's all for now. Don't forget to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. My name is Michael Dooney and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.